From Positive Momentum, this is Meet the CEO, a show that takes you behind the scenes of the working lives of people who have reached the top of the career ladder. I'm Phil Rance, a partner at Positive Momentum, and on today's show, we meet Adele Gritton. Adele is CEO of Local Partnerships, a public sector consultancy jointly owned by the Treasury, Local Government Association and Welsh Government. Local Partnerships plays an essential role in translating central government policy into action at local authority level in key areas including climate response, commercial development and housing and infrastructure. Adele joined Local Partnerships in 2022 with a remit to double the size of the business to deliver more value to the public sector. Adele moved into the public sector during COVID as Head of Economic Development for South Cambridgeshire District Council, and before that held a number of senior leadership roles in data, research and media strategy consulting. As a fluent Welsh speaker, she also serves as non-executive director at Welsh language broadcaster S4C, appointed by the Secretary of State for Digital Media, Culture and Sport into that role in 2020. I started out, as we always do on Meet the CEO, by asking Adele why she became a CEO. I think like most people, I didn't initially set out to become a CEO, but set out to be the best um, I could be at whatever it was I was doing at the time. And I've had a very varied career, mix of public and private sector. First half of my career was mainly in the private sector, focusing on research, consulting, strategy. And latterly, I've moved into the private sector, but being able to use the skills I'd honed over the first 20 years. But I think it's fair to say I probably got to a relatively senior position quite young on. I was 29 when I got my first senior director position. I got to MD by the age of 32. So I guess it was then really a logical and upwards trajectory to, to CEO from there. I was thinking back when I was prepping for, for this piece about what really kind of drives me to want to do those senior leadership roles. And I think it probably is, you know, it goes back to school, doesn't it? It goes back to your childhood, it goes back to the sorts of things that you enjoy doing growing up. I was always in school that loyal, that trusted, that dependable, safe pair of hands. I was always comfortable being picked as the team leader for whether it be sport, whether it be music, whether it be to sing a solo in front of the whole school. And I was generally the sort of person who was respected by teachers, pupils and classmates alike. So I think wouldn't say that there's a stars written at that point, but I think what you do in your childhood and the kind of child you are and the kind of opportunities and experiences you're given probably do lend themselves to the type of person that you become longer term. I've also really enjoyed connecting with people at lots of different levels. I've been inquisitive about people's backgrounds. I've liked to get to know people from all walks of life. And I've really liked to nurture talent and help others grow to be the best that they can be. Obviously, as a, a female leader at various points in my career, I've been very lucky to mentor young talent, young emerging female talent. And it's been great to see as I'm a CEO, you know, the last 10, 15 years, the people I've mentored them coming through the director, MD ranks and senior leadership positions themselves. So I guess kind of really it's all been about formative childhood years, the stuff that you do in school, what floats your boat in terms of people and the kind of person you are that ultimately has probably all led me to, to become the CEO that I am. But I never set out to be a CEO. It is something that's happened organically throughout the course of my career.
So it all goes back to being teacher's pet. Is that what you're saying? So I was teacher's pet as such. But yeah, I was always a good girl. I, I never got detention. I was never one of those who was um, hauled into the headmaster's kind of room, shall we say. I think, yes, just doing a good job, being a good person, listening, breaking the rules sometimes, but not in any um, disruptive uh, way that gets you in front of the head teacher was always, always my modus operandi. Very good. Very balanced. And just to probe a bit on the female leadership thing, because it's something that, you know, I've noticed in you it feels like you want to be a strong female boss and that kind of role model aspect is really important to you is that true it is really important Um, I have an 11 year old daughter and an almost 13 year old son and you know thinking about the future of work for hopefully a much more balanced society where gender really doesn't matter in terms of what you do and do not do I guess from an early age I wanted to set that trajectory for my family so you know as I said I got to director positions quite early on I was able to get to the sorts of senior positions I wanted to before I had my children Um, what happens for a lot of women is you know they don't quite make it before they have children then it's stalled by the time they go back so I I guess I did make a concerted point of probably delaying motherhood until I got to a certain stage in my career I'd also made a point of not allowing childbirth to stall a career trajectory. I'm not saying everyone should go back to work when their children are six weeks old. I know there are many examples of people who do, but I went back to work when my son was five months old and I went back to work when my daughter was three months old, but I had a fantastic husband who took six months off. It was one of the early shared paternity things that you could do, I think, back in 2012. And I've always been about, you know, shared parental duties. Why should it always be the mum who's the one who has to take the nine, 12 months off? Why can't it be six and six? Or why can't it be dad entirety, depending on the individual situation? So if I can do more in the workplace to promote that, to allow people to do what's right for their family, rather than what's been historically the norm, I think I'm doing a service for for women and I'm pushing the kind of work balanced agenda forward. So yeah, Yes, for me, it's always been about female empowerment, female leadership, not having anyone tell you you can't do something because of your sex or gender. Yeah, absolutely right. The next question's, I guess, more of a personal one, just around how you manage yourself, which is, is there a part of your day that is sacrosanct that you preserve at all costs? Not necessarily the weekday, but weekends for me are are very sacrosanct. I have a relatively, I wouldn't say unique, but I guess in some ways it is a unique family uh, situation that my children are both choristers in Cambridge, which means they have to board in term time. They have a very full-on musical singing schedule. They are allowed to come out on what's called a leave-out for a few hours on a Saturday and Sunday, so normally between sort of 10, 30, 11 and 4 on a Saturday and between 12 and 4 on a Sunday is that precious family time where I get to see my children, I get to talk to them, having not really spoken to them much Monday to Friday. So I'm lucky that I'm in a role that doesn't require me to be all over the world or present in conferences, events at weekends. But I do make sure that that's the time where I do turn off the work phone. Um, It literally does go off for those few hours and that precious time with my family, I maintain it throughout, throughout term time. I also do try and have the work-life balance rather than the work-life blend. I know there's, there's a lot of talk that in this sort of post-COVID era where we're all working from home more and more, I certainly work from home three times a week on average and go into the office around about twice. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but it's very easy to have that work-life blend and modus operandi creep into kind of how you view things. But for me, it is important to have a balance. So whether it's turning off the laptop at six or seven, you know, different days, different things, 
but then it does go off until the next morning. Yes, there's a temptation to check the odd email now and again and sometimes to respond quickly. But I think putting those boundaries in place for what's right for you is important. And I've tried to keep myself true to true to that. But even at weekends, so you're not working, but I didn't realise the children are singing for like a good chunk of every weekend. Yeah, they sing Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and there's concerts and all sorts of things in between. So it's a lifestyle thing that we do as a family rather than it being just about the kids. They're busier than you are by the sound of it. I think they are, but very much trained to be future leaders in terms of the regime that they have. They've probably got a more regimented schedule, yeah. Coming back to the, the CEO job, what's the most challenging event or situation that you've ever faced? And what did you learn from it? Yeah, I was trying to think of whether there's one or what are the things that probably have shaped my thinking and how I've changed as a person or how I've, you know, evolved my thinking or my modus operandi as a result of certain events. And there are probably three things. So the first one was when I was MD slash CEO of a a fairly well-known research strategy company in the UK. I won't go into the nuances of ownership and structure and all that sort of thing. But suffice to say, there was a fairly hairy period where cash was a problem. Cash flow was a real problem. And we were literally struggling to meet payroll. Private equity backers at the time were being quite obstinate and were quite firm that they wouldn't be putting more money in. It literally was the 11th hour. What do we do if we don't have money in now? We simply will not be able to make this month's payroll. I think it's fair to say the staff overall knew the company wasn't in its finest health, but they had no idea that it perhaps was so close to the brink. Long and the short of it was I decided as leader to put in quite a significant amount of my own money and got three other directors to do so so that we could make payroll, um, knowing that it would be at least probably four to six months before we would see that money back. And it was also, in honesty, a little bit of a punt as to whether we would get it back then. Long story short, we got the money back, but it was personal responsibility, really taking my director liability seriously at that point in time, being really vested in making something work, in sustaining something, and also, I guess, making sure that, you know, the 120 people who were employed at my watch weren't suddenly unemployed within 24 hours, ultimately through an make kind of discussion, decision-making point with the board. So that for me was a key learning point in time in terms of how to manage or not to manage boards, how to interact with or not to interact with shareholders and do the right thing, which for me at that point in time was making sure that 120 people didn't lose their jobs overnight and that what was otherwise a very good, viable company with great clients who was just hitting a bit of a a rough patch in terms of cash and bad financial management could continue as a going concern for further period of time. So I guess the learning was don't be afraid to do the right thing, to stick your neck out and really lead by example in this case putting some of my significant financial family savings on the line in order to protect the company and the people who worked for me. So that was one very commercial kind of ruthless piece of learning in my career. And it also taught me the benefit of really spotlight forensic analysis on cash. Um, I hadn't been monitoring the cash flow for a while and I was trusting my FD who perhaps had been hiding things from me at that point in time or for a period of months or making things sound a little bit more rosy than they were. So it taught me to never always take things at face value and always really scrutinise what's under the bonnet. Ultimately, you as chief exec, as MD, as a board director, are liable and take that liability seriously. I'm not sure everybody who's perhaps not an owner-founder 
understands that, but I certainly do as a result of that particular experience that I had. So that was probably the hairiest, most challenging moment in my career. But I also found it quite challenging during COVID where I was not a chief exec, but I was a senior leadership team member. I was what's called an SRO, a senior responsible officer at a council in South Cambridgeshire where I went in literally at the start of the pandemic to set up the sort of crisis management, the get stuff done, get stuff through the books when there was no precedent, no rule book as to how to do things. So effectively, I set up a commercial investment, economic development team, business support team, the team that was there to support small, medium businesses locally through the horrendous time that was having to shut down their restaurants, their cafes, their hairdressers. Um, Many of these people had no ideas how to suddenly, for example, go online, how to suddenly convert your hairdressing business to an online tutorial business or how to suddenly turn your cafe into a takeaway only lots of very complex sort of pivot transformational things that businesses needed to be able to do and there was no central government support um, to do that so the council that I worked for at the time was very I think forward thinking in its view that it needed a team to help the local businesses do that so that's really how I got back into the public sector earnest for that two years so It was an eye opener for me to see the challenges, the backbone of our economy, which is small businesses. And I mean, one to five, one to nine employees who really had taken significant financial strain, financial hit, and, you know, literally had to pivot, recalibrate business models overnight, had to suddenly think differently about what they wanted for their futures. Many of them had to make hard decisions about their staff, furlough, not furlough, redundancy, et cetera, remortgage their own homes for their business all of those very complex decisions that my, uh, me and my team were helping them work through. So, you know, must have had 50, 60 conversations with different businesses over the course of the, the two years doing that. And that taught me a lot about personal values, individual values, and how to deal with tricky um, decisions that one needs to make in, in very constrained. So that was probably the second key learning for me. And the third was, again, just an awful period where a senior leadership team colleague, a female in her 40s, diagnosed very quickly with cancer and within sort of four months of that diagnosis passed away. I think that teaches you how to come together as a team, as an organisation, how to value what's important in life, how to realise that work is really important. And of course, you should throw yourself into doing what you can and be the best that you can be. But ultimately, Life is very short. It is very precious. And I think that taught us all to think differently about that work-life balance, that work-life friend, that perspective, that being nice and kind to people, family, friends, colleagues alike. I think it it made us become probably a humbler organization as a result of that tragic death. But it kind of puts things into perspective. So those, those three quite different experiences, episodes, all probably shaped the way I currently think, the way I currently behave. And All three of those experiences, all very different, probably taught me two main things. One was to be less harsh and hard on people, including myself, and kindness costs nothing. It it sounds cliche, but but it's very true. And, you know, if you're wrong or get things wrong, 
don't hesitate to apologise or try and make things right. Wow. Well, there's a lot to unpack in all of there, but you've synthesised it very nicely in terms of where you ultimately came out and how it's, I guess, changed your leadership approach or softened perhaps your leadership approach. I was interested, I didn't know about the cash problem, putting your own your own money in, and that must have been pretty hairy, as you say. I was then interested hearing about the COVID story. Just wondering if there's a parallel there and if having had that experience yourself of being against the wall and having a lot of people's livelihoods on your watch, whether that changed your approach to the COVID recovery piece? It certainly did at one level, but the COVID was, you know, at a much more sort of heightened crisis point because, you know, literally most small businesses or most micro businesses are a month or so away from disaster. If they can't get that steady cash flow, if they can't get that steady order book, they were always on, you know, relatively difficult ground to start with. The plus side was that um, I was responsible for distributing the government-backed grants. So we were fortunate to have, you know, in excess of £70 million worth of funding to support local businesses. And we came up with a scheme, a tiering, based on being able to support those that we know or we knew would be able to sustain and survive prolonged periods of, of closure, which effectively was, let's say, most of the retail hospitality leisure sector. So um, there was cash available for most of those businesses in the short term. The challenge was really then about helping them re-emerge, re-engage, go back to what they did before or continue to invest in the new business model as um, COVID restrictions basically ceased to be in in, in force. So the challenge really for some businesses was, do I stay with the, the new business model? Do I keep my, what was a cafe now as a takeaway with a small shop, or do I turn it back into a cafe? Or do I now open that third hairdressing salon that I was going to do pre-COVID, or do I stick with what I know? Because, you know, who knows what's going to happen next? So they were more strategic conversations overall. But I think, yes, the fact that I'd been there, I'd had to think quite long and hard about money situations did make me see things more empathetically and with a probably less ruthless lens that I might have otherwise had, had I not gone through a similar experience myself. But yeah, it's brilliant to see the resilience, the kind of ingenuity and the innovation entrepreneurial spirit that does come out in many small businesses when they are faced with, you know, nobody could have known six months prior that would be happening and we would be shutting down global economies. So everyone was in the same boat trying to deal with things and fathom things in the same way at the same time. Your experience must have been pretty rare in the public sector or in, in, in a local authority and being able to do that. Cambridge and especially the Cambridge cafes and hairdressers were lucky to have you. Who's most influenced the way you lead? I would say, first and foremost, it is indeed my parents. Um, my mum was a very fiery, feisty, strong head, strong willed woman. And my dad is the complete opposite. He's a very cool, calm, collected, quiet, kind man. So I think from opposites, really attracting my growing up, saw very different personalities, you know, every day and saw their different approaches, their different outlooks, their different ways of dealing with things. And I'd like to think I've got the best bits of my mum and the best bits of my dad to kind of give me that sort of very sort of centred sensible ground they definitely are the reason I'm able to be the success that I am today and and my brother too they allowed me to be the child that I needed to be they never pushed me they weren't helicopter parents but somehow they still got me to fulfill my potential and to do the things that they knew I was capable of so probably subliminally I learned something from them in terms of how I try and deal with and nurture teams around me too my 
children are probably influencing me as you see children grow up you know yourself you've got a few and you've got different ages so you've no doubt seen it too when they suddenly come into their own and when they suddenly start showing their own personalities and their own drive and when they start answering back and calling you up on things or pulling you up on things that they are seeing as contradictions that inevitably helps I think me or one think differently about how I explain things how I come back from things how I concede to things I think having children is is probably one of the best leadership training courses that you can ever go on because you are learning and self-reflecting along the way so yeah so children husband as well too but children children latterly And there's probably just one leader when I worked for a large US research firm that the chair of the company was a very wise 70 something year old gentleman who was the the company founder and was just always a very sensible person you could go to to have a chat to when you had a problem or you couldn't quite figure out how to sort something out. And he was very astute, very attuned to people and personalities and, and different ways of thinking. I just remember one phrase he said to me once, I'm not going to emulate uh, an American accent, um, because I wouldn't do it justice. But we were sort of having a drink on a lovely terrace bar in LA. And I was, I think, talking about a frustrating director situation I had back home. And he just sort of took a pause and said something like, the thing, Adele, is you got to remember, everyone's got a backstory. Everyone's got a backstory. And once you know that, everything else falls into place. And that kind of stuck with me. And then I reflected on why I had a particular problem with particular individual individuals in question. And you start unraveling it back and picking it back to the stuff that had gone in there on in their lives, both personally and in a work situation. And you, you start suddenly realizing that's why they are behaving or doing things in the way that they are. So that, that phrase really did stick with me. And every time I'm faced with a, a difficult situation or a challenging conversation or a meeting or something hasn't quite gone the way that I would have liked it to, I, I go back to Arnie. Everyone's got a backstory. What was the backstory in that meeting? Why did that person behave operate say things in the way in which he she they did and that I think then just helps me self-reflect and analyze to move things forward in the right way thereafter so those are probably the the three main things people types of people who've influenced how I think and how I lead I love that everyone's got a backstory essentially it's empathy isn't it it's kind of like there's a place where that's coming from your other influences your family is well, certainly the kids thing, I think, is about empathy as well. It's, you've got to see life through their eyes, right? Because you can't parent effectively. So that kind of forces you into a, a slightly different position. As someone who's maybe struggled with empathy themselves at times in their careers, <laughs> everyone's got a backstory is a really good one. So moving on to the way you manage and lead, what do you think is the secret to an effective executive team there isn't a silver bullet or there isn't sort of one secret source it's a combination of things and I think the things are openness with each other for a start you have to be able to talk to each other you have to be able to have uncomfortable conversations if that's what's needed it is a case of that the no I in team you know no egos no power play just a collective goodwill to get things done in the right ways on behalf of the staff, company and shareholder. And I always do it in that way, staff, company, shareholder, not shareholder, company, staff, because that genuinely, trust me, is the best way longer term to sustainable growth. I think diversity, diversity of thought, of gender, of age, of demographics, of work, of sectoral experiences, that's all, I think, really, really important. You know, it's it's the... The, the cliche, do not recruit a team that's completely in your mirror. Um, I always, if I'm recruiting from scratch, would always have, you know, somebody who's a bit like me, but then a bunch of other people who are very different to me to make sure that you have um, a right alignment. 
I think it's also really important that everyone is playing to their strengths in roles, particularly if one goes in and inherits teams, as I sometimes has have. You can quickly see that perhaps not everyone is is fulfilling their potential, not because they're not good, but perhaps they're not quite in the right role in the organization at that point in time. So, you know, it's the, the classic, you know, do an analysis of our people really playing to their strengths and are really giving what they're capable of um, to the organization. And I think it, yeah, it's really also having a balance of people who know the organization, who've worked there for a long time, that's really important, but equally, you know, bringing fresh blood, fresh thinking, having a consistent, churn at one level at leadership team I'm not saying you know annual churn but you know as, as part of a business plan cycle it would always be good to have some churn on leadership team towards the end of a, a business plan ready for new incoming fresh thinking so it's a combination of those things that I think really makes the most effective team and a combination of thinkers and feelers to put it crassly I'm a natural thinker but I've learned how to be a feeler as I've said from all the experiences and the kind of empathy type conversations we've just had a good leadership team has people who say, I think, and I feel with equal measure rather than just those who say, I think, or those who just say, I feel. Textbook answer, I think. Got it all in there. Yeah. Given the choice or given your your instinct, are you a sort of get the right structure and fit the people into it or kind of here's my team and how am I going to mould and evolve? The, again, the honest answer is it depends on the organisation and depends on where it is in its life cycle, in its heritage, in its ownership structure. So I've been in organisations where I've done it both ways. So it really does depend on that context at the time. Yeah, I think that's got to be right. Looking forward, what's the biggest challenge on your horizon? I looked at this in terms of work and play or sort of personal and work. So cliched, but it would be probably remiss of me not to talk about it. But, you know, I'm a woman in her late 40s. I'm a perimenopausal woman in her late 40s. So inevitably there is a sort of physiological change on the horizon and that sort of coincidentally I think very nicely you know dovetails the circle of life of my daughter becoming a young woman at a similar sort of time so that's I think quite a, a big personal change for me touch wood I seem to be managing that relatively calmly and effectively at the moment but I know many colleagues many friends many people in the same situation have hard times and it's great that that's all been brought much more to the forefront over recent years and well-being and, and women's health being a, a legitimate part of um, HR programs in organisations. I think that's very important, but very welcome. While I live in Cambridgeshire and we moved back here for my kids schooling four years ago, we, we bought a, a quick hurried house that will do. So I'm now at a stage where I'm probably about to buy my next house, which will be the house that hopefully gets me through the kids growing up and going to university. Yeah, a house move probably imminent in the next six months. My son is 13 this year. He has one more year in his current school. Uh, we're looking at schools for him for years nine to, to six form. So that will be, again, a bit of a, a change for us as a family. So those are the sort of family play related things. But as we said, everyone's got a backstory. So all that stuff feeds into to work, but loads of really good, positive work challenges on the horizon. I joined this company 10 months ago, and uh, quickly wrote a, a five-year business plan, a five-year vision for what we need to achieve with an ambition to double turnover, double income in a five-year period. So that's effectively asking the company to do in five years what it had done in 10 years previously. So, you know, it is ambitious in that sense. We are focusing on hiring, as we talked earlier about, the right people to do the right things, to shore us up for growth. We are hiring a little ahead of revenues at the moment. I think what one needs to do to be able to 
think about strategic client target acquisition and get people in to, to forge the relationships and make those relationships before the revenues come in. Pushing our new refreshed outward facing brand. We are working on new collateral. We have a new field to the website. And uh, yes, you feel like fulfilled. You've been helping us with our business development and proposition development as well as we evolve and as we uh, shore ourselves up for growth. The work that we do is in the political landscape. We are a consultancy that's owned by um, Welsh Government, Treasury and Local Government Association. We work solely for the public sector and we are surplus generating. We are not profit making and uh, profit making an LLP in that sense. So a sort of slightly quirky, relatively unique structure. I think it's fair to say there's a lot of political change potentially on the horizon. There will be a general election next year. Potential change of administration comes the potential for significant changes in policy direction. And that would ultimately um, have a bearing on the kind of consultancy work and the kind of support that we give and deliver to the public sector. So we need to be ready for any changes that may be afoot um, within the next 12 to, to 18 months. So some really exciting some really positive um, challenges ahead on the work front in the next five years. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting 12 months for you at local partnerships, I think, with a steady hand on the tiller through a lot of those cross currents that are going to happen. There's that parallel with the cash management crisis that you had, where you will be consciously trying to balance growth with responsibility for the financial health. So it'll be exciting. I think it'll be fun. It won't be without its bumps in the road, I suspect. I'm, I'm sure, but you know, I like a challenge and uh, I can see the, the fantastic potential with what we're doing. It's a great brand. It's got very smart people. We do great work that really does affect the public purse in a positive way. I know that our services are going to be required more and more as we all see this sort of negative and scare stories um, in the press about councils, we can help. We can make a dent positively in the sort of challenges that they're all facing. There's a definite sense of purpose about the place, I would say that. Last question, and it's I call it the quickfire round, which is what three pieces of advice would you give to anyone aspiring to be a CEO? Yeah, I think the first one is really don't be hung up about the title. I've been a more effective and empowered mid-level director or senior responsible officer in some of the roles I've had versus some of the ones that have come with an MD or CEO title. So I would say it's really about focusing on being the best you can be in the role that you're in at the time, do the right thing, lead by example, be the most senior person, the most authorial voice in that role. And then that dream job, that position will come because people will see the gravitas and the leadership skills that you espouse. I would also say just focus more generally on self-improvement all of the time, constantly self-reflect, self-critique. I'm not talking about beating yourself up after every meeting or interaction or project, but think daily, weekly, constantly, what could, should you've done differently for an improved outcome? I think that's a a really important framework that I adopt, certainly in, in how I deal with my week and my month annual cycle of business planning. The last one, it's not meant to end as a negative, but I think it's it's often under talked about. It is lonely at the top. So I think you do need to be prepared for that. I think people should really question themselves as to whether they're really genuinely ready and comfortable for that. And also go in with your eyes wide open that, you know, the buck, as I've said earlier, stops with you on everything that you do. You are the, the, the chief executive officer, mostly with a director level liability. So be prepared to be entirely comfortable with the uncomfortable and be very ready to take responsibility for people's actions and sometimes inaction and really question whether you are uh, resilient, energized, focused, determined enough to, to sit at the top of the executive tree. I know a number of great people who are brilliant leaders, but they don't have that resilience, that determination, that doggedness, that drive 
to stay there. And that's as important as wanting to get there in the, in the first place. Yeah, very, very much so. I was with someone the other day who essentially was kind of broken by the leadership experience they had through COVID, those challenges faced and took kind of you know, six months to recover. That's all part of life. Just to finish, your second point, self-improvement and self-reflection. You've used that phrase self-reflection quite a lot through this through this conversation. Yeah. Do you think that's something you do more of now? I've always done it, but I think I've learned to do it in a more empathetic, nuanced, balanced way as a result of all these sort of challenges that, that I've faced. So I'm conscious that it's always a lens that you can further tweak and, and work on. So it's not this sort of one finite version of self-reflection, self-critique that inevitably changes each time in light of the different experiences that you have. So it's a, it's a kind of continuous self-improvement lens, I guess, uh, as much as the, the self-reflection per se. That was a bit philosophical, wasn't it? But yeah, I think you, hopefully you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah, actually coming back to the perimenopausal point, it feels like that's become easier to discuss even in the last couple of years. It's on the agenda in my home life and <laughs> Or maybe it's just the life stage that we're at. Do you feel it's getting easier as a senior woman to confront those issues and be open about them? I, I think it is. If I was doing this podcast 10 years ago, well, firstly, I wouldn't have been in the perimenopausal phase, but I, I would never have thought about talking about this in a podcast 10 years ago. I think it would have probably been unwelcomed generally 10 years ago. So I, I do think that it's not just down to Davina McCall, but it is programmes like the Davina McCall Pro Black programme and having much more mainstream media spotlight on things and people coming out on social media explaining that they've had the same sort of things. And, you know, there's, there's lots of symptoms that, you know, I have and had no idea that they were perimenopausal until all of this sort of stuff starts coming out in the public domain. It's never talked about at school. You learn about the birds and the bees and you learn about menstruation, but you certainly don't learn about, you know, what happens at the other end. So there, there's a whole a whole, I think, suite of things that we as a society as part of education need to be rethinking. And I think that's all very much back on the agenda now. So no, it's it's definitely important for, I think, workplaces to, to embrace it, to be able to talk about it, so to put structures, processes, procedures, programs in place to help not just women, but men as well deal with it. You know, men go through similar challenges, not quite as physiologically marked, there to support their wives, their partners, their significant others. And I think as much needs to be to be put on that spotlight as well as, as just about women. But going back to everyone's got a backstory and everyone's got things going on in their life that that inevitably, I will use the word disrupt. It can enhance um, what people do at work for a period of time. And I think companies just need to be OK and open with that. 50 percent of the population, 50 percent of the workforce are female. So it's something we just need to be in tune with, I think. Yeah. And that the cycle of having children getting through your career that way and then having another hormonal impact on your career is got to be a challenge. I think we men, we do have our, our own challenges. We tend to probably be less aware about them and they perhaps follow less of an obvious physical pattern. The diversity, I think it gives you a different lens on diversity. And I, I think having been through those experiences, you come out in a different place as a leader. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Well, on that note, thank you very much for your time and for joining us on Meet the CEO. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you.
I was struck listening to Adele how strongly her personal influences play out in her business life. Adele credits her parents as the biggest influence on her leadership style, followed by her children. Weekends with the family are sacrosanct and are structured around the busy schedule of two choral scholars. We heard how the challenge of leading a business through a cash crisis, as well as helping other businesses through COVID and dealing with the death of a colleague from cancer, created perspective and made Adele less harsh on people, including herself. As Adele says, kindness costs nothing. In terms of team building, Adele takes a flexible approach, aiming to foster the openness and collective goodwill and get a balance between experience and fresh thinking. The challenges and rewards of being a woman in a leadership position came through strongly in our conversation, both consciously managing a career and making sacrifices through the childbirth years, and now confronting the prospect of menopause head on with characteristic openness. Finally, Adele recommends self-reflection to drive continuous improvement, thinking about how you could do better without beating yourself up. So thanks to Adele and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please share with others. If you're new to our show, welcome. Thanks for giving us a try. And why not take a look at the back catalogue where you'll find a wealth of different stories and experiences. In the meantime, best wishes for your own career and looking forward to welcoming you to the next episode of Meet the CEO from Positive Momentum.